Welcome to an episode of I Am Black History, Our Voices, Our Stories, brought to you by In the Black Canada and Deep Visions Media. I'm your host, Donna Paris, coming to you from Toronto, and I want to acknowledge that the land I am settled on today is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples and is home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. I give gratitude and thanks. I'm so excited to be here today with Leonard Paris, who now calls Mississauga home, but grew up in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia. Leonard caught my attention when I heard about the book he recently wrote and published called Jim Crow Also Lived Here, a memoir of 12 years of Leonard's life growing up Black and poor living in Priestville, community outside New Glasgow, Nova Scotia. Welcome, Leonard Paris, and thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for the invite. Maybe the first thing we should get out of the way is both of us share the surname Paris. And anyone listening from Nova Scotia knows there are many Parisers. There's the one R Paris, there's the two R Parises. Yes. Talk about Churro alone. Are you a Paris from the hill, from the marsh, from the island? <laughs> yes. I was going to ask you first, are we related? And then I saw your pictures in your book. Nina Paris was my great aunt. My grandfather, Percy Jackson, was Nina Paris's brother. And okay, so we yes. are related. Yes, yes. I was actually born in Truro, lived there for the first six years of my life, then spent the rest of the time in New Glasgow. But I, I always loved Truro, and I loved my grandparents dearly. Two very special people. Let's talk about your book. Great title, by the way. Can you talk to us a bit about how you decided on that title? Well, like most people who write books, getting the title can be one of the hardest parts. And I actually thought a lot about the title. I was originally going to call it The Race Trap, or The race, the Racism Trap, actually, because racism does trap you into poverty, into discrimination, into poor employment, a lot of other things. But then when I researched it, I found out that the founder of BET, the Black Entertainment Television, actually wrote a book called The Race Trap. So I had to abandon that idea. I knew a lot about the Jim Crow laws, segregation in the States and that. And the more I thought about the book and wrote the book, I realized that living in Nova Scotia, and I'm going to use Nova Scotia broadly, not just New Glasgow, because this is a Nova Scotia issue. And in some cases, other provincial issues, but I would say Nova Scotia was centralized in one, the black population at one time, and two, racism and discrimination against the black population at one time. So as I thought about it, I realized that living in Nova Scotia wasn't a lot unlike living in Alabama or Mississippi or Georgia in the 1950s and 1960s. when That's when I grew up in the 1950s and 1960s. So it wasn't unlike that. Were there signs on the door that said colored only or no Negroes in Nova Scotia? No, I don't think there was. There may be the odd exception, but typically there wasn't. Were there people that met you at the door and said, you're not allowed to be in here? We don't serve colored people. We don't serve Negroes, which were the terms at the time. Yes, there were. And many times I encountered that where somebody would meet me at the front door 
whether it be a, a barbershop, a restaurant, coffee shop, whatever. And, and they would very plainly and very bracingly tell you that your kind is not wanted here. Mm -hmm. So that's why I came out with the Jim Crow. I, I researched it and found out that there was not a title with that name. A lot of people think that Jim Crow segregation and Jim Crow laws only occurred in the Deep South, which is not true. Yes, you're right. Mm -hmm. It extended far into the northern United States. So Jim Crow was not just a southern United States laws and policies. So that's a little bit about why I selected that, that title. Okay. You talk a lot in your book about racial incidents and things that happens. And you say, no matter how much we have moved on, we still carry our childhood memories in our heads. These memories can be a major source of inspiration and joy, or they can cause both pain, mental suffering. And you also say it's not the name calling or the segregation that affects one's spirit and soul. It is the constant mantra by others that you are inferior or not worthy of acceptance or being part of the greater community. Can you say a bit more about that? That's right, yes. Well then, that's, uh, <laughs> that actually leads into the subtitle about structural racism. We all know racism exists, we know it. It existed then, it exists now, we know that. Mm -hmm. But there's also structural racism, which is the structure or the box within racism lives. And you, and you can pile all kinds of other racism within that box, including internalized racism, which we often cast upon ourselves. Sometimes we internalize it, right? And we start thinking, well, maybe I'm not as good or, you know, my color, my hair, or whatever, my features. So that's why I looked at structural racism. Structural racism is actually, well, it's the historical, it's cultural, and it's what will use people in power put in place, whether it's apartheid in South Africa or Jim Crow laws in the United States, whether it's segregation and discrimination in Canada, that all forms structural racism. That's why I went with that term, and that's what I was thinking about when I wrote the book. You know, one of the things that I found in this journey I've been on, collecting stories, is that there's people who think, well, there was no racism in Canada. I know, I know. And you know what? There's hardly a day goes by that I don't have a conversation with somebody, and they'll say, well, that didn't exist in Canada. Slavery didn't exist in Canada, they'll say. Racism didn't exist, exist in Canada. And, you know, I'm very quick in having a conversation and telling them about my story and my journey. And in fact, slavery did exist in Canada. Black people were bought and sold in Canada, primarily in, in Ontario and Quebec, sometimes on the Eastern shore, but primarily Ontario and Quebec. Wealthy people, poor people did not own slaves in those days, but the wealthy people did. Yeah, there's still that perception right today. But it happened in Canada also. Right. And you talk about how that still can impact your life today. I mean, you just were talking about internalized racism. How are yes. some of the things that happened to you, how are they still manifest in your life today? Well, unfortunately, they come back in the wee hours of the morning, like a lot of trauma in your life. And, you know, we've all had it, that tossing and turning at three or four in the morning. Quite often, your dreams and your thoughts We'll go back to your childhood. I still dream about my childhood. I still dream about growing up in Truro and Glasgow. Mostly I dream about the good part, 
you know, visiting my grandparents and, like I said, picking blueberries and playing with my friends and things like that. Great memories. But, I, but sometimes the harsh memories come back also. So I started to jot them down, my thoughts and my dreams and reflecting back on childhood and teen years. After I had about two books of these notes, uh, two notebooks, I should say, uh, I decided, well, what am I going to do with them now? So put a checkbox beside each note and started to write the book. And as I covered each thought, each memory, I just checked it off and went on to the next. I can only imagine that that's cathartic feeling for you. Very much so. Very much so. For anybody that suffered trauma, you know, hate, violence, it's very, very cathartic to write it out. It doesn't have to be a book. It can be to yourself. It can be to somebody else. It's very healing. It's a very healing journey to do that. And I've had feedback from my family since they read the book. At least three of my siblings gave me feedback that it's been a healing experience for them also. I want to talk a bit more about your story. So you've detailed your journey from applying to the RCMP to being in the RCAF and then working for the campus police at the University of Toronto. Can you share a little bit about that journey with us? Yes. Well, it was a long journey, 47 years I worked. Like a lot of young Black men growing up in Nova Scotia, the Army, Air Force, or the Navy was one way to escape. I went into quite a bit of detail in the book, the need to leave and seek better employment. Because typically in the 50s and 60s, and needless to say, well before that, the only jobs for young Black men and, and young Black women, not just men, it's not just a, wasn't just a male thing, was physical labor, was either working for white folks, you know, hauling garbage, doing construction work, labor work and that. It's very different today because people now send their children to university and to college and better educated and that. But when you're in generational poverty that's existed for well over 200 years in Nova Scotia, 250 years in some cases, when you're coming out of that sort of, or in that sort of poverty, it's not an option to go to college or go to university or get a good government job or, or whatever. Plus, in a lot of cases, uh, you weren't accepted anyhow. So the journey started with me joining the Air Force. I was always very involved with Army cadets. I was involved for a short period, for about one year with the Army Reserve, the, the militia as it's known. So I thought it would be a logical step to join the military. I was always proud of my father that he served during the war. So I decided to join the Air Force. I loved it. I, I really loved it. And I actually missed the military even today. Made a lot of good friends, had good times. Yeah, did I encounter some racism? I did. Not nearly as much as I did in Nova Scotia, not nearly. I talked in the book about the need to correct racism when you're faced with it, especially as an adult. It's not that easy when you're, when you're in school, you know, as a young child or even an early teen. It's, Sometimes you don't have the maturity, the bravery to properly face racism. But as an adult, I formed those skills and maturity. And every opportunity, if I was faced with racism or it was thrust upon me, I was very quick in either correcting that person. can't always change how they feel, but you can change or you can make it known to them 
that it's not acceptable to you. I remember telling one guy he made a racist comment. Obviously, we know what the what the comment is that triggers most black people. And, and I, I remember my comment to him was, "You can say what you want about me behind my back, but to my face or in my presence, you will not say that about me or any other black person." You know. So, like I said, you cannot always change people, but you can put boundaries on their behavior. What was his reaction? Well, first off, he was surprised I found out, or he was surprised that I confronted him about his comment, because I had overheard the comment, actually. He was standing nearby. So uh, after that, he typically avoided me. But I mean, the good thing about something like that, and it, even today, uh, the word will spread that Len or Donna does not accept that sort of behavior in their presence. And you have to correct them. You have to correct them. And that made my life a little easier in the military because I said the word spreads. Was I willing to physically fight if I had to? If, I, if someone challenged me physically? Yes, I was. I'm not proud of that, but I was willing to. I met people in the military who came from areas that never seen a black person. I remember my first posting to uh, Chatham, New Brunswick. It was an Air Force fighter base. It's now called Miramichi. At that time, it was Chatham and Newcastle, two different towns. But I remember my first posting there, and I was walking in downtown Chatham, not just once, but several times. People approached me on the street. They say, I don't mean to offend you, but you're the first black person I've ever seen in my life. And I actually had one person ask me once, do you mind if I touch you? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, you can tell when someone's doing it in a belittling manner or a racist manner, or you can tell when people are just curious, right? Now, I know there's a lot of people don't like, like people, you know, don't like saying, oh, can I touch your hair or whatever? Or, can I touch you? But I was calm. I mean, I've always been a confident person. I was confident enough that I said, yeah, sure, no problem. Mm -hmm. I think the subtext in their statement was, you know, will it rub off, right? <laughs> I think that was their subtext, but... But there are communities where, you know, black people didn't exist in those days. It'd be hard to find a community today in Canada where there's not either a black, Asian, South Asian person. Very hard to find. They exist, but it'd be hard to find them. But in those days, it was very easy to go, not just, I was going to say 10, 20, 30 miles. There's places you could go five miles from where you lived and there were no black people. <laughs> I know I have a friend, she came up from the United States. They moved to Sudbury. They were driving down the street and they would see a black person. They'd stop the car, they'd all get out, they'd all go run over to the black person and say hello. <laughs> I know, yeah. That remind me, my, my first time I came to Toronto, I was still in the military and I was taking training up in Camp Gordon up near Barrie. I've only been out of Nova Scotia at this point for about four months. And I'm visiting my aunt. I'm walking down the floor street. And every black person goes by, I'm smiling and saying hello and smiling and saying hello. After a while, they're looking at me like, what's wrong with this guy? You can't be from here. <laughs> no, no. But down home, you know, you'd stop them and you'd, you'd talk to them for an hour in the corner. Like, oh, who are you and who are you visiting? Where are you from? <laughs> I want to go back a bit first to preschool because you were talking about incidents of racism in preschool, you know, can you share yeah. sort of one of the ones that was really particularly hard? And then again, as you say, you were too young to be able to figure out how to respond back or what to do. Yeah. Well, actually preschool at the time, 
was mostly white. I explained in my book that there was about 15 black families, including a neighborhood that we called Jacksonville. I lived on an area that was called Bowden Road, which would be about a half a dozen black and mixed race families. The other 60 or so families in preschool were actually white. So we were outnumbered in terms of population. Right. And it was a daily struggle going to school because, well, you got called names every day. I don't think there was a day I went to school I wasn't called a name, a racist name. And quite often, not as often, but quite often, you'd be physically challenged or they'd try to, they'd try to you know, gang up or beat up on young black students. Well, like New Glasgow and like Pictou County in general encompasses about a half a dozen towns. I would say my whole life, it was probably the most racist place I was ever been. Wow. Now, I'd never had that same feeling about Truro. Did racism exist in Truro? Sure it did. It exists everywhere in Nova Scotia. But it wasn't overtly as obvious as in Pictou County, Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. Very much so. And could you talk with your family when you were young about race? Yes. My mom tried to discourage us from fighting, but she did encourage us to confront the agitators or sometimes that confrontation meant getting into a physical fight, but she did try to discourage it. She tried to encourage us to use our wits to avoid confrontation. There was a little shortcut we used to take through two schools through the woods so we could avoid the white students and we'd wait up in in the field above the school until the bell rang. So again, so we could avoid. So there was a lot of avoidance in those days. And I shouldn't say in those days, because I think in a lot of cases, uh, a lot of black people are still avoiding. They're avoiding gated communities. They're avoiding rich white neighborhoods. They're avoiding country clubs, because we've been taught to stay away and to avoid it and not confront. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned in the book about hearing eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Oh. Even though children say catch a tiger or whatever they mean. Tiger, yeah, yes. Actually have a physical reaction to hearing that. Yes. Or rhyme or whatever you want. You're waiting for the, you're waiting for that word to come out. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, even hearing it right now, even, you know, you and I, two black people, even hearing it, it makes my stomach drop. Yeah. Because we heard a lot in the schoolyard or, you know, uh, stories about Little Black Sambo and things like that, right? I mean, I talked in the book about actually having to stand up in school and read racist material or sing some of the old the old slave songs or the old, the old songs from the South. They weren't always slave songs. Some of them were just Southern songs where they talked about all the darkies, things of that nature. So... The recess bell rings and lo and behold, you know, the white students now have all kinds of new ammunition to throw at you. Mm-hmm. You know, so now you're little black Sambo, you know, or old black Joe and on and on and on. And what does that do to you? What does that do to a young black person? Ugh. Well, I mean, there's the hurt and the pain, we know. But I talked earlier about internalizing, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of it we internalize. And at some point, you start thinking, well, maybe I'm not as good. It's not a good thing to say, but I think we do internalize it sometimes. You got to fight it. You got to fight against it and break out of that internal struggle. 
but uh, sometimes we feel that way. What it does, it uh, it's hurtful. It's very hurtful. You know, when everybody in the class gets invited to the birthday party, but you're told you can't go because you're colored. No matter how nice they say it, it's hurtful. I mean, it's not a nice way of saying it. You can't go because you're colored, but there are people that try to be sensitive by saying it, or you can't play in my yard because my parents don't allow black or colored children, Negro children in my yard. Right. It's very hurtful. And how did you feel about yourself? The question I actually want to ask is, was there ever a time when you thought, oh, I wish I wasn't black? No, no. I, I, honestly, I've, I've never thought that. I've often thought, I'd like, why couldn't I have been born rich? <laughs> because with being black then comes poverty. Right. And, I mean, we haven't talked a lot about poverty, but mm-hmm. that can be a greater hardship than the racism uh, that's being thrust upon you or, 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 or being black. That can apply to not just black people, it can apply to white people also and other ethnicities. If, if you're living in abject poverty, it's a struggle. It's a real struggle, regardless of your color. So tell us a bit about that, about being poor. What was that like? Well, first off, there was a lot of poor people in those days. You know, thus the term, you know, hard times in the maritimes, right? <laughs> Which we all heard. There were poor white people. There were poor black people. There were some white people that were poorer than us, believe it or not. We had one family lived in Priestville. They didn't even have a clothesline. They used to dry their clothes on the bushes outside their house. That's how poor they were. They didn't have a piece of rope for a clothesline. So there were poor white people also. But when you're poor and white, and if you're poor and black, it's very different, very much different. I'm sure you heard the term of intersectionality, right? Intersectionality. You know the term I mean? Intersectionality, yes. Intersectionality, that's it. It's not just being black, but it's being black. It's being poor. It's being black and being a woman. It's being black and being gay or lesbian. It's being black and being disabled. So uh, it was it was a struggle. It was a daily struggle. I mean, I credit my mom in the book for our survival. I really do, because uh, without her, we probably wouldn't have survived. I mean, my dad was out there trying to find work and didn't see a lot of my dad because, like I say, it was a daily struggle just to, just to find labor or find work. So, I mean, I talked about you know, the coal houses and lack of food and having to carry water as, you know, go to our relatives in New Glasgow that were on town water and have to carry water back to Priestful from downtown, at least one mile each way, right? And then you had people driving by and, you know, your white students from your same school be driving by and, you know, you're pulling a cartload of water along the edge of the road, right? And so you could have water to drink that night or water to bathe in, that sort of thing, you know, burning scrap wood, asphalt shingles, you know, because, well, hardwood was something unheard of. We never had hardwood. It was like always scrap wood, right? My uncle had a small trucking business, and as often as he could, he would dump scrap wood in our yard, and we'd cut it up and burn it. My mom going to rummage sales to get clothing, spending, you know, a nickel or 10 cents on a pair of socks or a sweater or a shirt. So we'd have worn clothing. So it was, it, it, was a, it was a big struggle. Do you think that people both black and white would be surprised to hear those stories? No, no, I don't think so. Well, I'm, I'm talking about maritime people would not be surprised to hear about poverty. 
because there was a lot of poverty in the maritime. And I've talked to white friends I met in the military, and they talked about their poverty. They, they weren't faced with racism or discrimination or, or segregation. They weren't faced with that. But they were talked about their poverty. They had nothing. And that's why a lot of them joined the military to get out of, to get out of poverty. You know? So I don't think a lot of people in the Maritimes would be surprised. At least people brought up in that era. People today, it's very different today. People have better housing, better jobs, both black and white. Mm-hmm. younger people today would be surprised. I tell my children some of the stories. Uh, they're grown adults now. And even though they know I wouldn't lie to them, they have trouble believing that it was that hard and that difficult. Because wow. they never had to face those sort of difficulties, at least in terms of poverty, in terms of racism. I think we're, we're all, we all face it and we're still facing it. Yes. Well, I think that's the importance of telling these stories because, you know, young people don't know a lot of the stories of what happened to their ancestors who came before and what they had to go through in order for them to have the kind of life that they now have. That's right. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting. In the book, you talked about your dad and how finally forgiving him. Yeah, that was, uh, that was hard because for a long time I blamed my dad because we didn't have food and we didn't have a warm house to live in. And well, we didn't have money. I mean, money was unheard of. I mean, I grew up, never had a bicycle all the time I grew up. We, we never owned a car. My dad never drove a car, never owned a car. So I, I kind of blame them that we had to grow up in such poverty. But then I look back, and the book helped in that, but I actually forgave him years before I even thought about writing the book. I realized that what he faced and his journey was very, very difficult. He came from a family of about 15 children. Wow. Four of his siblings had died before the age of 35. And the contributing factors in at least three of those deaths was poor housing, poor nutrition. These are his siblings, young siblings. Mm-hmm. His sister, my aunt, the only job she could get was touring Canada and the northern United States as Aunt Jemima. Wow. I have the, I have the news article on that. She was a great cook. She was a great housekeeper. And she toured. That's the only job she could get at the time. She toured Canada and the United States as Aunt Jemima. This would be in the mid-1950s. So I was still quite young at that time. I mean, other than the news article, I really don't have a lot on that. But I do have the news article. I do have the picture. I'm not sure how it was set up. I think because the word spread that in New Glasgow and places, because she did work for some white families as a housekeeper and as a cook. And in her later years, she actually worked for the wealthiest family in New Glasgow uh, as a housekeeper and as a cook. So I think the word spread that, oh, she's a great cook, great housekeeper. I'm not sure who was looking for Aunt Jemima at the time, someone to portray Aunt Jemima, Mm -hmm. but she ended up getting that job. Very limited opportunities for men and women, black men and women. Extremely limited, very limited. There were a couple of black men that got a job on the town. But then, you know, you're just working on the back of a truck, picking up brush and garbage and brush and stuff like that, right? Yeah, very, very difficult. I know for my dad's, like all of his brothers, they went into the armed services like you. Yes, that was your big escape. A lot of young black men from the Glasgow and Truro. A lot of men from Truro ended up being CNR porters. Yes. Because Truro was the hub at that time, was the railroad hub for Nova Scotia. 
most of the trains in Nova Scotia went through the town of Truro. Uh, so a lot of the black men in Truro became sleeping car porters, CN Rail. Okay. And there's lots of stories there. And as a, as a matter of fact, you're probably aware of a book that was written in, by a former sleeping car porter. Yeah, I think the book is called, They Call Me George. I think that's the book. They called all the sleeping car porters George, no matter what your name was. It was like, George, make up my bed. George, get me a copy. George, do this story. You know, and they were basically working for tips and low wages. Wow. And a, a lot of men from Truro, both from the island, the marsh, the hill, they were sleeping car porters. Yeah. And I know that there was women. Yeah. A lot of young black women went to Boston to be maids and housekeepers and things like that. That's right. Yes. So what do you know about Percy Jackson and Nina? You know, what's the, what's the ancestry there? My grandmother, Nina Jackson, she was born in Sheet Harbor, Nova Scotia. But she was born in Sheet Harbor to a fairly large family. I'm not sure when she moved to the Truro area. Well, her mother's family had immigrated from France. Mary Jane Pusher, H-U-S-H-E-R. That part of the family was from France, but they were of Irish and Scottish descent. But they lived in France. They immigrated in early 1800s, 1831. 1831, they immigrated to Canada. So that was my mother's mother, or my grandmother's mother, sorry. Her father was a Jackson, William Jackson. And I have quite a few records on him. And I think a lot of that family originated down in the Guysboro, Nova Scotia area, down in that area. I can go back further on my dad's side than I can on my mom's side. On my dad's side, I can go all the way back to John Paris, who came to Nova Scotia from... North Carolina. He was in the North Carolina and Virginia area with the British, and he came to Nova Scotia in 1755 as a black loyalist. There were a lot that came with the British prior to, well prior to the American Civil War. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You didn't know any of this when you were younger, right? You had no sense of... Oh, no. No, I knew my parents and grandparents and some aunts and uncles, and that was about it. (laughs) I knew I had family in Rhode Island on my grandfather's side. I knew that. Uh, Their last name is Ballou, B-A-L-L-O-U, and they're in Rhode Island. I knew that, but other than that, I knew I had a lot of Jacksons, a lot of Paris's relatives, but other than that, I didn't really know much more. Now I find out that, you know, there's a whole history of ancestry there. Right. Uh, In the family book I have, it doesn't go into too much into occupation and movement. It talks about when they were born, what year, what children they had, who they married, stuff like that, right? So I got a family tree. I got the ancestry. The book seemed to be the logical step. Right. But what the next step is, I'm not sure. Well, maybe even a book now about that ancestry. Yes, that's that's a good point. Because mm-hmm. a lot of valuable information. And uh, I mean, I've had people ask me, well, where are you from? And I say, well, what do you mean where I'm from? Well, I'm, I'm Canadian. Well, yeah, but how long have you been in Canada? I mean, we've all experienced that, right? Yes, where are your parents from? Well, where are your grandparents from? Uh, yeah, you know, well, I'm from Nova Scotia. Well, yeah, but before that and before that. Yeah. So anyhow, now I tell them my family's been in Nova Scotia for almost 12 generations, over 250 years, and the same person asking the question their family's only been in Canada for three generations. Right. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> so, I mean, they don't realize that there's a long, rich history of Black people in, 
in Canada. Mm-hmm. Long history, going back to uh, early 1700s and, and before that. Yeah. You could go back to 1600s. This has been wonderful talking to you today. You talked about lots of different things. The only thing I want to say in closing, we as Black people, we've supported each other. A lot of times it's been through our church and our Black communities. And that's been our saving grace. Without our churches, I'm not an overly religious person, but church played an important role in my life. The Black community and the support from the Black community, we have to hold on to those values and those support systems. Mm-hmm. So I give credit to the to those, not only to people, many people in my lives, but to the Black community as a whole and the Black church. Well, thank you so much, Leonard Paris, for being with us today, or should I say cuz. <laughs> well, thank you, Donna. To check out and order Leonard's book, go to jimcrowalsolivedhere.com. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to check out our website, www.intheblackcanada.ca, to listen to Black Canadians from across this country talk about their experiences and those of their ancestors of being Black in Canada. And if you have a story to tell, contact us through the website or at intheblackcanada at gmail.com. You can catch more episodes of I Am Black History, Our Voices, Our Stories, wherever you get your podcasts. And this podcast was made possible by a grant from the Canada Council for the Arts.